Welcome to an 8-Bit Special. I'm your host, Frankie Godoy. Today, we are doing the first annual non-denominational holiday special, where we speak about eight games that really spoke to us this 2021, this year, and what games we are looking forward to in the future. Today, I am joined by Moises Taveres from Paste Magazine, Fanbyte Media, as well as Waypoint from Vice. Moises, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, how have you enjoyed this 2021? Um, 2021's been a trash fire, I would say, but in terms of games, it's been pretty good. It sure has been. But some of the games we played this year didn't exactly come out in 2021. What was one game that really spoke to you this year? Um, well, one of the first games that really stuck with me this year was Deep Rock Galactic, which is a co-op shooter sort of in the vein of think like Left 4 Dead, um, except everything is polygonal and you are dwarfs mining a planet for a stereotypically hellish corporation that has zero care for your health or life. Um, and the things that you fight off in the mines are giant space bugs. It is a really fun, really simple conceit that I think I really needed, especially at the beginning of the year when I played it. I had just started dabbling in playing co-op games with folks again, especially two friends of mine who I reconnected with a lot this year, uh, which I needed after uh, 2020 was a especially terrible year um and yeah it was it was on game pass it was so it was super affordable it really did not stress needing to to do too much you know everybody had their roles but also the jobs that they performed were fairly basic and it was just fun I feel like so many games are, are are tripping over themselves in order to be something greater than that. And so they often lose track of the fact that like games are kind of at least originally supposed to just be fun toys, you know, fun digital toys, distractions for you. Um, and so, yeah, that was a really welcome start to my year with Deep Rock Galactic. I have some experience with Deep Rock Galactic, but nothing too in-depth. Uh, I found some of the comedy a little out there, uh, but the shooting was also very enjoyable. I also like the just mining in general, where I like mining games like Minecraft or Astroneer, but I didn't have necessarily the same co-op experience as I tried playing through it with just one other person, and the difficulty curve is very strict if you're playing with just two people. Mm-hmm. No, it, it definitely is, and and as you scale up, obviously the the like s- the scale of the operations and the difficulty of the operations increases with it. Um, so uh, if you get more people too, you'll just want to naturally do the harder things. Um, it is not entirely suited for one person, or or I would say honestly less than three. Uh, three was kind of a sweet spot. Because you only needed one more player really to do the to, to max out the player count, um, but yeah, I, I think if you can definitely wrangle like two other people with you, 
if you can wrangle three other people, um, then it's definitely a really good time. Deep Rock Galactic is one of the more popular cooperative shooters, especially with its similar feel as something like Left 4 Dead and just a cooperative progressive shooter. Did you jump into any other of those co-op progressive shooters this year, like the Left 4 Dead uh, spiritual sequel and Back 4 Blood? So I did check out Back 4 Blood. I also just checked out Left 4 Dead for the first time this year. Really? Uh, yes, I, I think I actually started on Left 4 Dead. Because I had convinced this same group of friends to purchase the game like two years prior, but had never actually gotten around to playing it. So at the start of this year, I think we played Left 4 Dead first. Didn't get to like any DLC, I think. But we finished it, and then we moved on to Left 4 Dead 2. And then we didn't get any of the DLC for that either. But after we rounded out both of those, and we knew that Back for Blood was coming eventually down the line, uh, but we wanted something to play in the meantime, that's how we kind of found Deep Rock Galactic. And I had heard things about it on Twitter from friends, uh, but I had never actually gotten into it myself. And I had never really played a lot of those games. Um, I think prior to this year, the most experience I had with it was playing Left 4 Dead 2 once on a charity live stream for like 30 minutes so other than that i really hadn't dipped my toes in and then this year i just dove fully in and i found out that that stuff is really fun for me uh i i think i have something like 50 to 60 hours in deep rock galactic i if i could purchase the dlcs for the left 4 dead games i would do it so that i could play more of those um and i still need to finish back for blood but i think me and my friends will be getting around to that soon and then we're also maybe gonna get the expansion pass so we might have more of that down the line well we'll see if there are more zombies or mining in your future now, for one game that really spoke to me this year was the recently released halo infinite so my experience with Halo goes back years. At this point, probably most of my life. I've spent most of my life playing Halo uh, in some form or another. Uh, most of my experience when it comes to Halo comes from The Forge, which unfortunately is not here at launch, just because I, I was a child that enjoyed playing with Legos and creating things, and creating Halo maps was one way that I got really into being able to do basically whatever I wanted, but without the limitations of blocks. But with Halo Infinite, since there really haven't been any other big arena shooter type, since the shooter genre has been moving towards larger scale fights, such as in Battle Royale, or even some of the larger battle modes in Battlefield, or in Call of Duty, such as the there's one mode in Modern Warfare where I think you can go up to 64 people, similar to Battlefield, it was really nice getting back into Halo and having those smaller fights and having smaller, more consistent fields and making sure that everyone is on an equal footing when they come into that first initial fight. So everyone has the same starting weapons, the same abilities, same everything, which isn't something that you get in a lot of modern shooters. Yeah, I... I only recently got into the halo games myself like i would say obviously in the last few years since like master chief collection came out 
was when I really began playing those games. Besides that, I dabbled in like the multiplayer suites for like the more recent ones like 4 and 5. And I think I found something there that I liked, especially in 5. Because 5 seemed to harken more closely to the really, really incredibly small-scale arenas of like Halo Combat Evolved and Halo 2. Uh, before scale became like the big thing in shooters really and so i really found something in guardians that i I really liked and then i couldn't really find anything else that looked like it until this year because this year we got the halo technical test and ultimately at the end of the year we got halo infinite but we also got splitgate which was the only other arena shooter that I really saw that was popping off and that people were actively excited about. And so I'm glad that arena shooters are back because I didn't know this because I did not play Halo all my life. I, I kind of like them. They are kind of really fun. Um, you know, you're not used to in some of the games that you're talking about, like starting on the same playing field. You know, you, you, all these games are usually about like making loadouts and you really only start with the same gear when you're all starting the game day one, but same starts is, is a really fun equalizer. Uh, the weapon feel of just everything, even the bad guns in Halo Infinite, because there's, there's one or two that aren't quite up to snuff, but even the feel of those is kind of incredible compared to how most guns in most shooters feel i think the only thing that actually beats it is probably destiny which is made by the folks who made halo and yeah i've just found a lot to love in halo infinite this year i i didn't realize this at the time but i kind of became a a halo sicko over the course of the year i i mainlined all of the games again on co-op I flirted with doing them on Legendary, but they were really hard. Legendary is very difficult, yes. Legendary is very, very difficult. But I I think I found something in the simplicity of Halo Infinite that really speaks to me in a way that the endless complexities of a lot of the AAA games these days just, they confound me and they lose me. But Halo Infinite dares to ask um, if hammer go boom boom make serotonin and uh it it does it really does and the other thing without is just going on your point with the complexity and the simplicity of the game is that the complexity is there but not at a system level where it doesn't have to be a number of different menus that give you different stat boosts or tracking all of these different things as to what is the most meta uh, like weapon, what is the best loadout to go into games with, it really comes down to map knowledge and being able to traverse all of these different maps in the most efficient way, finding your sight lines, coordinating with your teammates, or even going solo and tracking all the different spawn timers in your mind, since with a lot of games, those things don't really exist where you don't have to worry about spawns just because you, you have your guns. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a lot of versatility that it encourages. It, de- it definitely encourages like versatility in terms of map knowledge, uh, weapon spawns, um, not just the timers, but what weapons spawn 
in which locations of the map um and then it really it really challenges you to make the things work in tandem in ways that you might not have even thought that they would um you know people don't people playing halo didn't have a grapple hook until this game and so the grapple hook just blows the door wide open on how you do all of these things but also it's understated it's it's it's, at the end of the day it's just a grappling hook you know it's not that much of a game changer but it does force you to look at everything from a different lens um and that's that's kind of what i like about it it's like you say like it's not complexity in terms of menus it's not complexity in terms of metas and numbers going up and down and this will clearly win out over this although power weapons are still going to get you more kills and using vehicles will also help you get objectives people playing halo infinite please remember these things i literally wrote a guide about it because not enough of you are realizing this but yeah it's it's really it's fun in a traditional way. It doesn't pare things down just to remind you of the good old days of playing the game. Like it really does seem to get the the draw of those things is just how simple it is to use any one thing or any combination of things to make incredible plays happen. You know, I remember watching a video that likened halo and the appeal of halo to the fact that it's kind of just sports it's like athleticism you know they get out on the field and you know like you start bobbing and weaving and everything and it just it feels good in motion and that's i mean if i were to tell anybody like what's the number one thing they should do in halo it's just like don't stay still just be in motion you know go with the flow of like the fight follow a guy to the spawn base and and mess around with grenades or you know just use everything in your toolkit because that is the way that you get the absolute most out of this game my one gripe with the game now that has been out for a few weeks not with progression they're working on that uh or the lack of co-op but simply just from being a passionate member of this specific community in the game is the lack of forge and that access to user-generated content through the game. Just because now with a free-to-play model uh, and being able to let in so many different people to play this game for the first time, because there have been probably a whole generation of kids that have grown up on different games that have played everything except Halo, peak Halo in this heyday. But just that lack of Forge to be able to keep the game going the user-generated content and just the different maps and the different game types that different people have made over the years have really kept Halo going in the times where there may not be as much consistent content coming out or even in the later years of the game when something's been going on for so long that people have dipped and gone off to other games, Return to Call of Duties, Battlefields, or any other game that might be coming out now like Counter-Strike, Valorant, and having that user-generated content really made something of a tight-knit community that could go in, test, and now some people that I know were Forgers back in the day have gone off to work at 343 or other game studios to make other shooters. And so seeing them thrive now in with Splitgate and seeing all these other people that I used to know by their tags 
on these forums now going out into game development is really quite motivating and really nice to see. And I'd really want to see once Forge launches sometime next year, hopefully, where that user-generated content and where these different creators can go in the future. No, I was I was just going to say my my biggest my biggest knock against Halo Infinite at this point is sort of it, it sort of ties into to the the Forge woes and the co-op woes and just like it's ultimately I think that the game as good as it feels it just doesn't feel like it was ready to come out. Um, it it's I I understand the the problems that they have sort of put out there as like this is what we're solving in order to get to a place where forge is in the game and where co-op is in the game but it also it, I, I can't help but feel like i like halo infinite the product more than halo infinite the proper halo successor because it's missing those core parts of like its identity not that those things were even necessarily like all that important to me i think co-op was the the big thing for me whereas forge is the big thing for you but in just these like tremendous ways and even and even small ways like all the way up to launch I felt like the news about halo infinite just kept being that it was missing this or it was missing this it's not uh, ray tracing optimized. It's not going to have Forge. It'll have co-op three months later. It won't have mission select. And that kind of stuff adds up to make a game that just feels like it It was mostly there, right? And I've played it. I've played the campaign and I've played the multiplayer. I know it's there and I know it works. But it just feels like it's... As much as it harkens back to and as much as it captures... I think a lot of what people have wanted from Halo in a long time. It also got there while chipping away pieces of itself. And so I can't wait for it to all be together whenever it all comes together. Because I feel like those timelines keep shifting a little bit every time the team talks about it. But I know that it's a work in progress. I know that the team is openly communicating with the fans. I know that they're working on addressing the problems that they've had with the game as is getting the features that everybody wants in and halo infinite's a great game that's only going to get better and seems like it'll only grow larger because it seems like it's going to be the the halo platform for the next few years it is the infinite halo game it's right there in the name and now that we continue on to your second game what was another big game that really made a difference to you here in 2021 so i took a internship this year and that was my first real professional experience in games journalism as a writer as anything in the field that i've been trying to get into and it wasn't the first game but i believe it was the second game that i reviewed uh loop hero was a game that came out this year that really just blew my socks completely off I, I read the, the email and I thought that this game sounded interesting, but I had literally never even seen a still of it. I had never seen a trailer at all. I just kind of saw the offer to get a code and I told my boss, hey, I can review this because I, I have a guy at the PR agency and he was like, sure, should go for it. And then I played it and I basically didn't let go of it for two weeks. It 
gripped me like very few games have honestly gripped me this year and i think there's a few games that would round out my top 10 for 2021 that were pleasant surprises i really did not see loop hero coming loop hero was a shot clear out of the dark and i don't even really know how to describe it even though i did i had to for a review i guess you could call it a roguelike and you can also call it kind of a deck builder and you can call it an rpg like a turn-based rpg i've also heard it referred to as a tower defense it's it it looks like a tower defense game it kind of plays like a tower defense game you put down tiles in the world that's just like a complete void except for the path that you're walking on and all those tiles which are the cards which is why it's a deck builder do any number of things and and i was playing the game just like a few days ago and i found like an interaction between cards that i didn't even know existed and i and again i reviewed the game back in march uh not that i thought that i had 100 percent of it i knew that i did it but i just am constantly surprised by this game i think that's the best thing that i can say about it is that on top of all of the weird combinations of genres that come together to make this game work not only does it work but it's just always constantly surprising it is more complex than it lets on but it's never overbearing to a point where you are not having fun with it it's also so passive an experience because the game plays itself your 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 avatar walks down the road entirely on their own and you can pause the action but otherwise he will bump into enemies and he will naturally fight them on his own and all you do really is micromanage you micromanage the world that you're building around your character you micromanage the rare monsters that show up and where they spawn you micromanage nerfs on them like road lanterns that nerf uh the ability for for a lot of monsters to spawn in one place or you can put down a beacon that lets you travel faster um and you can swap out your gear but otherwise you don't play the game in the way that you traditionally think you would play the game and i think it's just a game that constantly subverts the the thing that you expect it to do you know down to the story down to the 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 slight twists in it i'm not going to say it's the most interesting story in the world but i think that it's very easy to think like oh this simplistic game with this simplistic ui and these really simple rules like it obviously can't do all that much but the game is never satisfied with just letting you think that it is the incredibly basic thing that it could have been and, and which could have been met with some success too, and instead settles for being just a thousand times more the game. And I don't know, it's just, it's one of those games that I would champion for the, 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 there was a cause that, there was a cause and a kind of phrase that, that caught on a while ago of like, I want cheaper games that are 
you know like i want cheaper uglier games you know that are that are way better than you know the big budget pretty overblown things i can't remember the exact slogan right now i can't conjure it in my head uh but i remember there even being like a a bundle that went on sale on on itch about it uh but it but it it really does like champion that cause and embodies it like it's not a pretty game it looks like a old 90s adventure game maybe but it's way more than that style it's way more than the genres that all come together to make it and it's one of the best games of the year it's it's in my top five uh i would recommend it to everybody but you could also read my review that pretty much says the same thing also you're not gonna hear this by the time because this is coming out later but it's free on the epic game store right now so (laughs) so if you hear this in the ether get it because it's incredible so one thing when I initially saw Loop Hero, just because I am quite a fan of roguelikes and different takes on the roguelike plus genre, is how they bring in all these different games and make them somehow accessible in this roguelike theme, just because the original rogue isn't the most accessible game at all. And one thing I saw when playing or when seeing initial footage of Loop Hero is the user interface, because it seems like a very PC-centric game where it seems like the kind of game you would really need to play on the PC. And now with the recent Switch port, and I believe the game is also coming to other consoles as well, how would you really play it on a console? And would you perhaps recommend playing this on either PC or some other touch-focused system rather than on a controller? I think that the number one place to play it is probably going to be on a PC, or if it, if it isn't already there, like an iPad something like that um i do and and because i haven't i haven't played the uh console versions i haven't played it on switch i do know a friend who has been playing it exclusively on switch since it came out on switch and has fallen completely head over heels for it uh so i have to imagine that it's well optimized for that because the 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 game really is as simple as you're just kind of moving cards from the bottom of the screen onto spaces like like onto squares in in like the void around your the road that you, your avatar is forced to walk on um you can also like i mentioned earlier there's a pause that actually you you can use it very tactically to before a battle it's like say your guy is walking and you're about to enter a battle but you just got some gear you can pause and you can put down like rocks or mountains or or meadows and all of these cards interact with one another if you put like a meadow next to a rock or a mountain it boosts the effects of the meadow like the meadow visually it'll bloom flowers and I think that will give you either greater HP or greater HP restoration. And you can also swap out equipment as well. So if you picked up anything from the last fight that's really good and you want to put it onto your guy before the next fight, you can absolutely pause the game and do that. 
And that is a thing that I didn't really take too much advantage of when I was playing the game the first run around. Since revisiting it, I have realized that while pausing is definitely not an essential function, there's a lot of use that you get out of weaning that little bit of time for yourself. And so I would definitely say that if you wanted to play it, whether you play it on PC or if you play it on console, you would get the most out of the game by utilizing it. And so I can't imagine it would be all that stressful for especially a console player to just press like whatever button it might be to to pause the, the action and then pick any one of the like dozen cards that you want and then like float it over the the, the tile. Like obviously on the PC you just mouse over it, but I imagine you can use like the, the D-pad um, or... I don't think it's a D-pad on the Switch. I think it's just another pair of face buttons. But uh, you can use the other pair of directional face buttons to to accomplish the same thing. And it would probably just go square to square to square. Um, regardless, it's a it's a it would probably be pretty intuitive on console. Uh, on PC, it's a no brainer for sure. Like PC is absolutely the way that you should play the game. And the best thing is that it runs on kind of anything. I played it initially on a six-year-old MacBook Air, and it was running perfectly well. So you really don't need a high-end rig to play it. I was playing it just fine on that, and and I think the team knows that, and so like they they made the game like super accessible visually and in terms of power usage, and I think that they, they realize that if we're gonna get this game onto every system that we possibly can. Um, we also have to make it like really accessible to play. So it's really simple. Like it, it's really just placing down cards, swapping out gear, maybe clicking on like your perks as you level up and uh, occasionally pausing the game. There isn't much more to do beyond that because yeah, combat just happens on its own. And that is the only other big thing that you do in the game. And that's the big thing that you do in most games. So if you axe combat, you really axe most of 90% of video games these days. So it, it really it plays itself. It's super intuitive to understand and it's just a great game. Just a great easy to play, easy to understand game. And coming from just the wide spans of games now in that roguelike roguelite genre, how would you compare it to other roguelikes that have come out this year? Um I would say that it's a much easier roguelike because or 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 roguelite or any one of those rogue plus games like you said because it just it gets rid of one of the major things of them which is the combat i feel like that's what you usually think of when you think of gameplay for not just most games but especially those but on top of that the procedural generation is fairly mild the like the the proc gen is really like the road that spawns is proc gen and the cards that the cards and gear that you'll get are proc gen but like the cards once you unlock enough things at your home base which is another facet of this game that i did not even touch on there's a home base that you build um that gives you perks helps you unlock new classes all of that good stuff at your at your base it, once you unlock a certain kind of building 
it will, I believe, allow you the ability to design the decks. So the cards that you get will be random, but they will be random cards from a, a from a deck that you approved. And that allows for infinitely more combinations between things that you are just free to discover and explore on your own. But it also means that the game is never throwing elements at you that you are not kind of mostly aware of. Uh, and so the, the, the rogue elements of the game, the, all of that proc gen stuff, it's, it's mild enough that it doesn't seriously bring down like a run. Uh, but just interesting enough that you're still on your toes the whole time, uh, even if you're not, even if you're not like necessarily being put through the ringer, you're still constantly on edge because you do have to balance how many of the cards you have, how you use them. You know, putting down a certain amount of environments causes enemy spawns to come out. Putting way too many enemy spawns on the road just mean that you'll get overwhelmed really quickly and so there's a balance game there that's really intriguing to suss out for yourself and then there are also just the secret interactions that the cards all have with one another that give really cool effects and, and i feel like that's like i feel like that's something that you sort of get a lot of in like roguelikes like spelunky right the deeper you get into that game the more secrets in the environments will reveal themselves and so it kind of pulls on all of that stuff but it delivers it in a way that you don't see any of those games do and i think that really lends loop hero a novelty that i didn't see in much else this year now when it comes to other strategy games when it comes to more management like games as putting on the path there was one game that i played this year that really spoke to me in a similar way and that was Frostpunk, where I haven't really played a whole lot of games in like this sort of management style, like when it comes to city management, but I am a big fan of strategy games and real-time strategy games. Not the biggest on different 4X games, just because 4X games are scary, and I believe the X's are, let's explore, exploit, X, X something. Do you know the 4X's? <laughs> I don't know the 4X's. I thought 4X was a reference to, like grid sizes or something i didn't know that there was like an acronym or not an acronym eh, yeah i guess kind of an acronym so different 4x games are games like civilization or stellaris or sins of a solar empire mm -hmm. where you have the 4x's explore expand exploit and exterminate which typically refer to the four different win conditions in this game and frostpunk is isn't necessarily a 4x it's more specifically just a city management game but when it comes to city management it is a lot more dire than some other city management games such as sim city where you are creating your city but things are a lot smaller scale but a lot more dire as the planet has frozen over and you are at risk of being one of the last civilizations left on this steampunk alternate reality it gets really tense it is very hectic but for a genre that i hadn't necessarily dabbled in entirely before it was thrilling to hop in and then just lose countless hours of my nights from sunset to sunrise without noticing it that i was spent in this white wasteland helping the people of my city survive 
So that sounds like, and Frostpunk has traditionally sounded like, a really off-putting experience to newcomers. Um, considering you didn't really connect with so many 4X games and city management games like that, what made Frostpunk connect so well outside of, I guess, maybe the, the appeal of the premise? So there's the appeal of the premise, but what really spoke to me was the the console port specifically where a lot of these games had been foreign to me specifically because of you need a pc because these games are difficult to manage without the specific clicker interface and all the different moving parts and whatnot frostpunk's console port makes it very accessible to manage all the different parts of the game simply with a controller and different shortcuts that manage and allow you to manage your city and placements and getting all the way around where there is it uses a similar interface to some modern AAA games with a floating cursor you effectively are the cursor and you move around with this cursor but it uses a similar interface of the cursor to the new iOS update and iPad OS where it is a floating circular cursor but when it gets to something that you can actually click on it consumes the entire item and highlights it so you know what you are on. Mm. And there's a little bit of stickiness to that to let you know it's like, hey, you're on this. And then it will give you a little tug before you can float on to the next object as your cursor. And having that cursor and being able to control it however which way allows you to just follow along with the game a lot more. Rather than having your cursor on a PC where you can click any which way and then you have all the different menus and they really managed to condense it down into an experience that you can play without needing to micromanage and go without. It's a very focused experience, which is what was less daunting. Since a lot of these games, you have all these different menus and gauges to go through, but Frostpunk really manages to condense things down and make it very accessible. Even though the things that you're dealing with in-game are very frightening and dark at times where one of the first decisions i made in my first playthrough was to allow child labor uh and just to turn off child labor laws to let all the children in the city uh, believe it's at least to the age of 10 uh, and i think there's an option to go even younger uh, allow them to work in the coal mines the steel mines just to make the most efficient use of all the people inside my city and it was even though it is a terrible decision to make it reality, it was a very comical decision to make at the time, especially that being the first decision to make as the mayor of this new city. And then that city eventually, further down in the playthrough that evening, turned into a uh, almost a religious cult where I became the effectively the god emperor of this city and managed to turn everyone into these religious zealots to run the city of coal in the world of cold. And it was a comical experience to see just how wild my city could turn into, just from the simple conceit of having a small city in a frozen world. And that's only one of the campaigns, as there's, I believe, six other campaigns that all play out in different parts of the world, since this, I believe, takes place in like a frozen London, and or a frozen United Kingdom, and from there, you can 
play in different parts of the United Kingdom and even different places of the world around these different Steam engines. I am very glad to hear that uh, it seems like you got in just the right amount of practice ahead of the uh, 4X Dune game Mm -hmm. coming out. Because if you think you're a god emperor in Frostpunk now, just wait. Just wait till you become worm in that game. Yeah, I will become a god emperor of Arrakis. Yes, yes. Let the spice flow. Remember, desert power. Let the spice flow. And now for a message from our sponsor. And now, there was one other game you have listed here for a game that spoke to you in 2021 that was one that I had initially gotten to back at launch but haven't been able to play recently as I was not able to finish it. And that game is The Outer Wilds. Now, what was your experience with The Outer Wilds this year? So to begin with my Outer Wilds experience, this year you have to go back a bit and you have to go back to when I first played the game in about 2019, which would have been, I believe, when the game came out. I took an interest in Outer Wilds pretty immediately because it seemed like a sci-fi story with just the right hook. You know, it, it didn't seem outward fantastical, but it seemed to have like whimsy to it that's typical of fantasy and that was seemingly weaved into a a, a story about the heat death of the universe and and ecological disaster and collapse and all of these things that have kind of been on my mind a lot uh as the world grows hotter and I'm not saying we're getting anywhere near Outer Wilds levels of things. I don't think that the sun is going to explode in 22 minutes, but I'm not saying that we're not on our way there. And so that really enticed me into Outer Wilds. And, and I think I had been really yearning for a game that was exploratory. I think one of my favorite games of the last few years was Hollow Knight. I mean, it's my favorite game ever now but at least in the last few years that game really tickled my brain in a sense because it really and this this is such a tropey like games journalist answer but like it really rewarded exploration in a way that delighted me because it, it wasn't it wasn't that it rewarded me mechanically. It, didn't, it wasn't that it gave me like in-game money. It wasn't that it gave me abilities, although it did. And that was nice, too, because it was a Metroidvania. Of course it gives you that. Uh, what I really liked about it was just the ability to poke at the edges of the world and like find these little gaps where maybe there was a statue of like some character or you know some corpse or something that wasn't necessarily lore but it like there there wasn't like a lore entry tied to these things it, it didn't really give me a, a detailed sense of like what the world was before i got there but it gave the impression of one and i think sometimes the impression of one is good enough i think as people who play games we probably know that there's a big obsession with lore these days there's uh, people want these games these narrative driven games 
to have all this background history like these explicit worlds drawn out and everything and and sometimes that's welcome you know sometimes i want a character's backstory but other times i just want to know that there was something there you know and and maybe it passed me by but that that doesn't strip it off of its power that doesn't strip it of its intrigue and i think that's a lot of what i found in outer wilds in outer wilds the world is ending the sun explodes every 22 minutes when it explodes there's this brilliant light in the sky and it goes outward and it just absorbs the whole solar system it's really pretty it's a it's a really pretty depiction of uh the end of the world and in the meantime you have to dart around between all of these lovely fading tempestuous like worlds uh all of these things like on the brink of collapse uh because of just the natural course of things in part and also because we are accelerationists we you know we work towards ends uh that are not justified by our means uh and the game seems actually pretty explicit about that you know everybody knows that the world is ending everybody knows kind of that they're playing with fire they do it anyways in search of something greater than themselves um and while the game offers an answer about what that greater thing, what that greater mystery is, I really loved just getting to know the worlds, getting to know the people that you meet on them, getting to enjoy peaceful moments at campfires, even when the world is like on fire around us, even when there are like cyclones over an, like a planet that is almost entirely an ocean and the cyclones take platforms up and shoot them into the atmosphere even when the surface of brittle hollow is literally collapsing into a black hole at the center of it and spits you out on the other side of the solar system even when the ash and ember twins are siphoning sand from one of them from one another like revealing caves under them even as all these things are going on and even as it threatens like my progress trying to like solve puzzles like i can't stop i i can't help but stop and like wonder like like damn that's cool you know like that's that's interesting there's i don't i don't know why there's necessarily a black hole at the center of brittle hollow and i think it's explained in the game but it doesn't really matter to me um i just i like it for being cool i like it for for encouraging me to jump into a black hole and see what's at the other end of it for encouraging me to explore the caverns beneath a desert planet basically for encouraging me to to sit on a a a little island that gets shot up into the atmosphere to to sit you know to land my ship on a moving meteor um as it like moves ever closer to the sun so that it thaws and i can see what's under it you know there are answers to everything because it's a mystery game it's it's an adventure game where you have to solve why the world is ending every 22 minutes and that is also seemingly the least important part to me and despite that it's still the most wonderful awe-inspiring occasionally scary sometimes whimsical and at the very end incredibly touching and smart game that like i've played all year 
and it's probably one of the best games I've ever played. Now, when you touched on the more adventurous aspect of the game and being able to explore different things and how everything seems so welcome for exploration, do you have any experience with any late 90s or early 2000s adventure puzzle games such as I do not. Or, okay, because those games were the first things that came to mind when I first started playing the game because it immediately reminded me of all the games in the Myst series from Myst, Riven, and then there were some other early uh, 2000s, late 90s adventure games such as Crystal Key, which I was very fond of, that also reminded me of all these different mystery adventure aspects, but now in a more modern light that allowed me to adventure through this thing and just sort of discover while I moved along and it didn't there weren't many explicit puzzles such as some that were in those older adventure games but the puzzle itself was weaving together all the different pieces from these lore notebooks and these keys that you found around the world and being able to piece them together to discover the story for yourself Mm -hmm. yeah I I have no experience with them but every time I have talked about just how much Outer Wilds kind of set my brain on fire for the like week or so that I played it. Everybody has constantly told me that I should definitely go back and play Myst. Um, you know, look into old 90s adventure games like they are exactly that. And I think I played The Witness, which is sort of in line with that, but I found The Witness way less. is very similar to that. Yeah, it's very it's very similar. I think it's way more puzzle centric and less focused on again to to say the thing that I hate saying because it sounds tropey. It it doesn't really reward exploration in the time that I spent with it. Um if I'm being completely real, I I think it's it kind of came off as like a really pompous game. Uh like something trying to disguise itself as uh, as high art in the form of a puzzle game um and it's it's tone and it's puzzles like really threw me off a lot um but i think getting back to the basics you know like the real core foundational titles in this genre would probably elicit like a similar experience for me as what i had playing outer wilds which i'm not going to call a religious experience but really really felt like it for like 10 seconds there and did you also play any of the dlc for the game that was recently released i did not it is a thing that i want to get around to especially because i think everything that i've heard about it really encapsulates another thing that i really loved about the game which is that as like you explored the different parts of the world the incredibly well hidden parts of the world and as you as you rounded like every corner in the game it really did feel different some places felt more like a horror game other places felt more like a puzzle game you know i mean in some places like it is just like a it's not a racing game but like it's a it's a you're you're in your spacecraft and you you really need to like you're you're pushed to the to the limits of like what you can really do in the spacecraft and then in other places you're you're on foot and you're just traveling around like absorbing story like a walking simulator um and i'm really interested in a project that really 
gets the varying tones but also like really heavily leans into one especially and the dlc seems to specifically lean into the horror aspects of it which were the fewest vibes and also like some of the best ones in outer wilds um it's it's a thing that you become really closely familiar with near the end of, end of the game and i relish at the thought of playing a more focused horror experience in that world and so i am definitely going back for echoes of the eye as soon as i can get my hands back on outer wilds because i had it on game pass and now it's not on game pass so i have to buy the game and then buy the dlc and that's whole web to untangle but i'm going to get to it because outer wilds is honest to god one of my favorite games ever now and when you touched on horror experiences another game that you have listed as one of your big experiences from this past year was resident evil village yeah um a game that i thought would be much scarier than it was i i ended up writing a piece kind of about this because i mean if you've played resident evil you know all the faces of resident evil um and i mean that in terms of the characters and i also mean that in just like the kind of game that it wants to be it's traditional survival horror it helped popularize it um it 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 is it has been the old third person survival horror game and it has also been the newer first person survival horror game it has been a (laughs) it has been a co-op multiplayer shooter and it has also been a competitive shooter sort of um it has been seemingly all shapes and sizes of the property that it can be uh and one of the more popular shapes and sizes is resident evil 4 which really helped transition the genre into the survival horror like action game and resident evil 4 is constantly called like the best one of these it is the benchmark for them I've played a little bit of Resident Evil 4. I've never played it entirely, but I can kind of get what they're getting at there. Resident Evil Village, especially coming off of the heels of Resident Evil 7 Biohazard, which was that return to survival horror after devolving into blockbuster action movie nonsense where you're punching boulders, is a really all-over-the-place experience that I think understands that Resident Evil does not mean any one thing anymore and means a lot of things. And so it is also the wildest game that I think I played in 2021. It is the only game I think that has ever given me sort of zombie people, werewolves, a vampire, um, fish people, and a like cyborg army all as, uh, as enemies in one game. And while I'm sure that there are games with with bolder aspirations and even more out-of-pocket premises, I think what I really love is that this just felt like Resident Evil's watershed moment, where it was just like, you think we're this one thing because we made you think that we were going to be this one thing. Um, but no, we are... We are we are sort of everything and we are nothing and we are going to make the most fun out of it. And it is a game that never takes itself seriously. 
okay maybe at the end it takes itself seriously but by then you know kind of not to take it seriously and so you're just kind of on a roller coaster and it is the weirdest roller coaster it's sometimes a horror game it's mostly an action game sometimes it's a puzzle game i think at all times really it's just it's fun it's it's got tight controls um it's got a wacky premise i mean i i'm not going to spoil the premise because it's a lot but it's it's a hell of a game is really the way to describe it i words have failed me time and time again when i try to talk about resident evil village and it has fallen off of like my top 10 list as experiences that have more closely resonated with me have like filled those slots but it's like at a close really distant like 12th place or 13th place just because there are fewer games that really lived up to the promise of being just wall-to-wall fun wall-to-wall like unpredictable in in the way that resident evil village was for the entirety of its pretty short run it was also not a long game which helped endear it to me um it's like the main character in it ethan comes back from resident evil 7 biohazard but he comes back as like a dad with terrible jokes now and it all it all just rings of like a team that that finally realizes that they shouldn't box themselves in and they shouldn't let anybody box them in and (laughs) that both worries me and also incredibly excites me about wherever the hell they go from here but if resident evil village is like any indication of where it should go i think that resident evil is in good hands right now now, as someone who has always had a cursory interest in the Resident Evil series, but is an absolute baby when it comes to horror experiences, how accessible would you say the horror aspects and just Resident Evil 8 is as a horror survival shooter? It is incredibly accessible. Um, there are different areas and different enemies aligned with different sort of aesthetic goals of the game. For example, when you're like in the more open-ended areas with the werewolves, for example, the game is more of a straightforward action-adventure shooter game. There is one place that kind of got a reputation for it uh, called House Beneviento that is the most horrific part of that game. Like, the game really segments its genres and moods into areas and certain bosses and certain foes and so outside of house beneviento the game is okay on the scares i think there are some jump scares but there's nothing that should scare you as much as doing anything in resident evil 7 biohazard which was just straight up a horror game just all the way through as a horror game and and you can really feel the shift from that horror game into the action game just by the speed of resident evil village um and also just the controls. Everything felt slower in Biohazard, and that included like your aiming and your shooting, because Ethan Winters wasn't he was just a guy. He was just looking for his wife. Like he's he's not a he's not a military man. He's not like an ex-cop or something. He doesn't look like a man who's even gotten into a fight with somebody at a bar, let alone fired a gun so everything is really like drawn out everything is really slow everything is really plotting and that makes sense and it leans into that especially to 
give the game its its horror atmosphere. By the time you get to Village, Ethan still isn't all those things, but he knows his way around a gun now, and the designers know that they want to make him a dumb himbo and uh, an action protagonist rather than a horror protagonist. And so the gun controls are much tighter. You run much quicker. Um, everything is just kind of brought up to the speed that the game wants to be at. And so the the horror is even well adapted to that speed, but it also means that like the game can't be horror all the time. And so it 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 microdoses horror all throughout the game, but like really leans into it in one specific place. And once you're through with that, you're really through the worst of it. And it's never so bad that it would... I mean, unless you're really wary of horror. I'm very wary of horror. (laughs) Unless you're like the most wary of horror, I think you should be able to make it through that section and be able to get through the rest of the game. Uh, I think even as far as like levels go, it's probably the shortest one of all of them. Like they, they know that the trick can only go for so long. And they know that they have a rest of the whole game that they want you to see. And so I think they're very deliberate about the the limits of the horror. And I think that as long as you go in knowing when to expect it and to expect a good bit of it, you will make it to the other side. And I think you will be grateful for it because Resident Evil Village is legitimately one of the wildest rides I've been on in a game all year. Now, when it comes to Wild Rides, would you compare it more to something along the lines of Resident Evil 4 or the very segmented experience that was also Resident Evil 6? I would compare it much more to 4 because as much as it leans into different tones, um, they're not like so divergent from one another that you feel like, oh, this is a completely different game in this area or I don't even recognize this here. Um, it, it definitely all stems from a very central atmosphere and ambiance that they're going for and even if the even if the enemies and and the bosses like get to be a little all over the place i think once you suspend your disbelief and you're just like this is what this game is going to do you're gonna find that it all goes together much better and much more smoothly than than you would think and so and 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 just the the village theme is just also a, like it's a send-up of the village from resident evil 4 uh, a lot of people talk about resident evil 4 in conversation with resident evil village because resident evil village is definitely trying to recapture a lot of what 4 did and so if you like 4 i think you'll probably like village i may have to check it out resident evil 4 is one of the few games in the resident evil series i was able to play through in its entirety even though I have also bought that game, I think, seven different times across seven different systems. Have you bought it on VR yet? Not yet. I don't own a VR-capable device for the game, but I'll be sure to check it out at that time. Hmm. Now, another game that also touches on horror, although light horror in the way, is the Nintendo-released Metroid Dread. And Metroid Dread is absolutely one of the games that came out of nowhere when it was announced earlier this year and was one that really hit with me uh, in a special way, similar to Halo Infinite, where it comes from a place of nostalgia. 
and it was one of the few times where nostalgia really got me with a game as some people have experienced with other games since a lot of different companies are using that sort of nostalgia hit in order to attract people to their properties but with metroid dread because my experience with metroid goes back to years one of the first games i ever played on my Game Boy Advance when I was six years old, seven years old at the time, was Metroid Fusion, the fourth canonical game in the Metroid series, since Prime technically isn't canon considered by Nintendo. And then for years after that, they were talking about the follow-up Metroid Dread, which was supposed to release on Nintendo DS. And I had heard of this game and whispers of it for years, like, oh yeah, Metroid Dread, it's the next game. And eventually, at some point over the past 15, 20 years, that faded away, and I sort of forgot about the Metroid series. Nintendo sort of forgot about the Metroid series. And so then Metroid Dread sort of faded away into the back of my mind. But then during, I believe it was E3, when this trailer comes up and it says, Metroid Dread... It was one of the few visceral reactions I've ever had to a game announcement because I I thought this game was gone. I thought this game would never happen. And then Metroid Dread is somehow coming out within the next four months. And I finally got to play it. And it was it was incredible. It it wasn't made by an in-house Nintendo team. It was instead made by Mercury Steam, who had handled the remake of Metroid 2 on 3DS and also the Castlevania Lords of Shadow series, which was another series of mine that I have fond memories with on the Game Boy Advance through other Castlevanias, although they took it into a more God of War-esque adventure, uh, action-adventure type game. And Metroid Dread really brought back these feelings of adventure and mystery and just also just platforming goodness since the game is phenomenal when it comes to motion and puzzles that really challenge you in platforming and reflexes where there were some instances there was one part where I knew there was a power later that would have made this task much easier but I decided I wanted to do it at that point for this missile pack that I had discovered. And so I spent hours trying to get seemingly a frame-perfect input to get past this wall while I was where it was a frame-perfect input in order to maintain a shine spark to get past this door and then to get this missile pack. And I was dead set on getting this missile pack. And then I found an ability later on that made it way easier. But this game really brought back those feels of a classic Metroid adventure where while other games have come along that also inspire that Hollow Knight was one, Dead Cells was another, that have these 2D Metroidvania vibes, there's nothing quite like just Metroid. And it has a very specific feel and the team at Mercury Steam alongside the tutelage of the original director of Metroid were able to really encapsulate that in Metroid Dread, along with the the more horror touches when it comes to dealing with the Emmys in-game, which are also some of the most terrifying things in games I've experienced this year, where having one catch up to you and having it spike come through its face and just pierce you, although it fades to black so you don't have to see Samus get just horribly murdered on screen. 
It's still very scary, but there is nothing quite as satisfying as being able to get the perfect input to counter an Emmy and then being able to escape. And that is still one of the most satisfying experiences that I have felt this year and for a while in video games of being able to escape this unkillable beast that will just do nothing but pursue you. And it really brought back that sense of adventure that I had been missing from different games. The Although the story was pretty light, although it is maybe the most story-heavy 2D Metroid game of them all, it really wrapped things up and put the series in a safe place where now whoever manages the Metroid series from here can take it wherever they want, since this effectively wrapped up everything that has been in the works for the past think 35 years or 30 years when it comes to metroid and it will be phenomenal to see where the series can go from here yeah i i played metroid dread and it was the first it's not the first metroid game that i ever played because i had dabbled in others i had played a little bit of prime 3 for example and i think on emulators i had tried super metroid and the original Metroid, but I had completely fallen off them. Metroid Dread is the first Metroid game that I ever beat, though. And it's especially... I think that especially comes on the heels of... In the last few years, I finally realized that I really like Metroidvanias. And so... It was it was good to be able to play the game that really... Or at least the successor to the games that really set the stage for that genre to, to take off. And while I, while it personally fell like flat to me in terms of the exploration, I completely understand the exploration in the game as just a kind of a result of like the times. I think exploration in Metroid games has always been tied to mechanical upgrades and, you know, taking on those challenges for yourself, like you mentioned with the frame perfect shine spark input. Um, and that stuff doesn't work for me, but I completely understand how that works for other people. And I'm just really happy that it's back. I'm glad that there are games now in this field that are hopefully speaking to both ends of it and to all the nuances between them. And it's just really good, I think, to have Metroid back because I have never been a Metroid fan, but I know that there are metroid fans i know that you have been starved i know that federation force just didn't hit like that and i know that they you know metroid fans are some of the most devoted video game fans i think i've ever seen and while i don't typically like to speak about gamers having entitlements i feel like those folks were probably owed a, a, a true Metroid game for a while now. And and Metroid Dread was supposed to be that way back when. And I didn't even know that because I wasn't I wasn't conscious of that stuff back then. But I didn't know that it was supposed to be a DS game in like the mid two thousands or anything. And and I'm just I'm glad that it's out. I'm glad that it's out. I'm glad that it's a great game. I really enjoyed my time with it. And even though I only came into Metroid at the conclusion of this arc, I guess, it was a good enough game to convince me to go back. And so I did play a bit of Zero Mission before my emulator ate my save. And that really broke my heart. 
but I'll go back to it and finish it someday. And it really makes me interested in where they go from here because for reasons that I won't get into on this podcast because it's people are going to listen to this and they may not want spoilers. Um, it really sets the stage for what should be a really exciting series uh, after after the things that come to pass by the end of the game. Uh, it'll it'll be. It'll be, I think, refreshing for people to to not just get new Metroid, but get something greater than than Metroid Dread, which was great, but I think played it really safe because it kind of needed to. It kind of needed to convince people that Metroid is here, Metroid is great, Metroid is all the things that you want it to be, and also Metroid could be more. And I think it I think it teased it out just enough to where now people really want the more. And I think that whoever handles it, whether it's Mercury Steam or another team, although it'll probably be Mercury Steam, I think they are primed to really blow like the doors off of what a 2D Metroid game could look like, could feel like, um, and I just hope that it doesn't take all that long. Because I think if Metroid fans need to wait another decade and a half for a game they're going to lose it, probably. <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I just want more Metroid. I think Metroid is probably here to stay after the reception for this game. And I'm excited to see a staple that seems to be long forgotten sort of reclaim its legacy and, and rejoin the, the field. And really, and really show, like, why you know, Metroid was, is, is half of the equation with Metroidvanias and why it deserves the legacy that it has. There's a reason why so many indie developers choose to use that genre of game to create their next adventure. There very much is. There's a really, really good blueprint that they've provided in, in seemingly all their games and is present in Metroid Dread. And I'm excited to see how the people who are being kind of heralded as the you know the folks who saved metroid how they how they choose to evolve that and so i just think metroid is in an exciting place and i think it'll be it'll be fun to watch it'll be fun to play uh, but for now metroid dread is just a really good game that you can play now one thing that really I'm looking forward to, especially with the release of Metroid Dread, is something that you touched on, is how will it will inspire other creators in the game space, especially in the indie space when it comes to different Metroidvania games. Excuse me, Metroid Dread really specifically took on a different sort of design template when it comes to its gameplay loops in the way how the map design really pushes you to work in a very cyclical nature moving from one point and then looping you back to or a safe spot and then from there moving on to a next bigger loop that encapsulates the other loop and moving from there whereas other metroidvanias have really just pointed you in different lines stemming from a hub or going off in different loops uh, such as with the original metroid where you have four places you clear and then you leave so I'm really looking forward to see how they evolve the design, not just from action or platforming, but also from a story perspective in the future. And one other game that people long thought gone and was a big evolution for the studio was Psychonauts 2. 
Psychonauts 2 was another game that really connected with me this past year, just because it really was, frankly, the best 3D platformer to come out this year. I'm not sure of too many other 3D platformers that came out this year, and is honestly just one of my favorite games from this year, where not only did it tell a phenomenal story, but that story was also encapsulated into gameplay, level design, world design, in a way that I really haven't experienced in many games before, where the idea of dealing with uh, your heart and how dealing with open heart surgeries and surgeries in general is encapsulated into a horse race where people are betting on which organ will survive <laughs> or how uh, encapsulating a character's troubles with becoming a mother and motherhood is encapsulated in this idea of a dartboard or a roulette board and just trying to see if a kid will happen or not which is terrifying uh, but all of these different facets of telling a story through a world that you happen to be jumping and dashing and rolling through all the while really having a meaningful story and just the game is beautiful in general a lot of people like to make the comparison when it comes to animated or more animated and cartoony games as comparing them to pixar films although the closest thing to maybe a pixar film released this year that's playable would probably be ratchet and clank uh, that's a game that gets a frequent comparison to being a pixar film and so in at least from my perspective psychonauts 2 would be something closer to a dreamworks film which also has phenomenal animation values and some of the best storytelling outside of Disney in the animation field and Psychonauts 2 really manages to compound everything into just one beautiful package that is phenomenal and moreover it's on Game Pass so if you have Game Pass on PC or on Xbox it makes it very accessible to go in and just play this incredible 3D platformer. Yeah, there's very little, I think, that I can say about Psychonauts 2 that you haven't already. Uh, it's it's a feat, really. It's a it's an artistic feat. It's a it, it, in terms of its art direction and how it wraps it up into its levels and like the actual themes of the game and and the the struggles of the characters that the narrative expounds on is. Uh, to me near perfect um it's it's just it's light and it's tender in a way that is really rare i feel like to find in the triple a space and and i don't know that we should consider psychonauts to triple a game but it now come it, it now is a game that released from a a microsoft owned studio so i will just loop it in there because it i mean it has the production to to kind of match some of those um yeah i think it's just i think it's a fantastic game it's it's my second favorite game of the year uh for a while there i think it was number one uh and and i am just glad that it exists I only played Psychonauts for the first time last year, 
and I wasn't expecting much of it, but I knew that it had a reputation for being really good and really inventive. And while I think the second game sort of pairs a little bit of that, of that back, I don't I don't think Psychonauts 2 goes as big as for example the uh the napoleon like strategy game level in the first psychonauts which then eventually evolved into what would become brutal legend yes yes which then eventually basically became brutal legend um i think it more leans into a lot of the design tenets that made the milkman conspiracy like such a standout hit and really makes i mean it the the games were always make a game like make levels out of personalities make like make levels out of mindsets um but i think milkman conspiracy was the really perfect encapsulation of that and so i think they just kind of elaborated on that for a game in psychonauts 2 and then married it with bigger production you know, and and really, like the, because it was like it was like a 15, 16 year difference between the games, something like that. Um, I think you can tell the growth in that time. Um, I think Psychonauts is a good game. I think it is a surprisingly sweet game. I think it is also sometimes like a little dated in its humor, sometimes a little crass never overwhelmingly so but like it's it's a little immature in places and psychonauts 2 definitely wears on its sleeve like we know where we came from we also know where we've been since then and we're in a much better place now and i think it delivers on that on every front and it's just one of the best games of the year i think easily and now before we wrap up this show I would like to ask you, what are some games that you're looking forward to next year? If you had the list, say just one or two that you're looking forward to in 2022. Oh, well, you you cut me off at two, but I could go for like probably a dozen. Um, I think if I were to really encapsulate I'm most looking forward to next year, one of the games for sure is uh, a game called El Paso Everywhere. Or, or El Paso elsewhere, not everywhere. It is coming from the indie developer Strange Scaffold, which is a team headed by a particularly quirky man who makes some games that I really love called uh, Zalavir Nelson Jr. And it is his take on Max Payne. It is Max Payne in a motel that seems to have levels to it that go under the earth and into hell uh and his lover who is i think satan's daughter is the big baddie and it is just it's dark but it's action-packed it's a max pain kind of game which is really its own thing when you think of uh, like third-person action shooters, and I'm just excited by everything that I've seen from it, so I'm really looking forward to El Paso elsewhere. And I think if I were to pick maybe one more thing, it would probably be Redfall. 
from Arcane because I love Arcane now. They're kind of one of my favorite developers after playing a lot of their games this year. And yeah, the idea of like a co-op shooter with like the arcane magic behind it is just way too much to ever think I could pass up. So I will happily shoot some vampires with, uh, with friends because that seems like a good time to me. See, typically when it comes to games I'm looking forward to, I usually say that the game I'm most looking forward to is the one I don't know exists yet. Mm. Where typically there is a game that will come out of nowhere and just catches my eye, I will play it, and it becomes one of my favorite things. Mm -hmm. But of the list of games that I know are coming next year, Redfall is absolutely one of those. Just because I have always been a huge fan of immersive sims, going back to Deus Ex back in the day, to even now Dishonored, Prey, and Deathloop this year, just a few months ago. So Redfall, being able to play an immersive shooter sim, uh, depending on how immersive sim the game seems to jump into, is really something I'd look forward to, especially hopping in with friends, where we can choose our own adventures and... It really seems like a cooperative version of, say, Vampire, the Bloodline, or Vampire, the Masquerade, Bloodline, and all the different games in go. the World of Darkness series, but put into its own original form by Arcane, which is formed from some of the wizards in the past of Looking Glass Studios, and those that really made the immersive sim genre. Other than that, the other game that I am looking forward to, just out of sheer curiosity to see what it ends up being, is Pokemon Legends Arceus. Just because it seems like the kind of game that people have been clamoring for from the Pokemon franchise, especially directly from the team behind the Pokemon games, for years now. Going on decades at this point. Since X and Y or, excuse me, Sword and Shield didn't necessarily seem to deliver on that 3D Pokemon experience that some people thought it would be. Uh, Legends Arceus really seems to be the game that they have been looking forward to, as all gameplay and different snippets that have been released from the game seem to hint at something closer towards Monster Hunter, which Monster Hunter really is sort of the next evolution of Pokemon. And so this seems to be that in-between spot of a classic Pokemon adventure along with Monster Hunter sensibilities in order to make this 3D Pokemon adventure unlike anything that we have seen before. And so it piqued my curiosity at announcement, and I'm just very excited to see where the franchise can go from there. And on top of going places, we're going to be wrapping up here. And so once again, uh, this has been an 8-bit special report for the non-denominational holiday special year one. If you'd like to hear more from me, you can follow the official show channel at 8bitsgg, that is at the number 8, B-I-T-S-G-G. -G. You can also follow me personally on Twitter at Frankie Godoy, that is at F-R-A-N-K-I-E-G-O-D-O-Y. And now, Moises, where can we follow you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Platano Ranger. That is P-L-A-T-A-N-O, Ranger. Um, you can keep up with all my work there because that is where I will post it. Otherwise, you can follow the various places that I've already written at. 
So Paste Magazine, uh, Fanbyte, which just got a redesign and it looks cool. Waypoint at Vice. Um, Uprocks. I've written for Uprocks and still doing stuff over there as well. So I'm a freelancer. I'm about town, uh, but you can mostly find me on my Twitter page. Uh, probably talking about Final Fantasy XIV these days. Well, thank you for joining us, Moises, for this holiday special. But otherwise, that's really it. So, once again, thank you for listening, and have a happy holiday. (laughs) 